The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. <laughs> Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. <laughs> Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Good evening, you're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome to Season 5, Episode 23. I'm your host, Otis Jiry. In tonight's episode, I'll be performing four stories for you about irresponsible experiments, ruinous regrets, sinister strolls, and oceanic atrocities. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which contains the first two terrifying tales. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail, so lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and settle in. The show is about to begin. <laughs> Our first tale tonight comes to us from author Kenneth Cole. In it, we'll discover what happens when, thanks to the miracle of science, death is nothing more than an inconvenience. Without further ado, I present to you The Montford Experiment. My name's Jim Hutchison. Most people call me Hutch. Even in my professional life, my family-owned business is as a concrete contractor, and we perform work for a variety of private and federal clients. One such client is the Texas State Department of Corrections. It was work at one of their detention centers that got me interested in volunteering at a facility. About five years back, we were installing a parking lot at the Montford Adult Correctional Institute in Lubbock. It's also known by its more appropriate name, the Montford Psychiatric Unit, as all of the inmates have been diagnosed with some type of mental disorder or other. 
As my men were doing the preparation, concrete placement, and finishing over a number of weeks, I used to watch people walking in and out of the front doors of the facility. It was depressing. Always the same scene. There would be inmates in orange and white striped jumpsuits, trustees, outside the doors sweeping the front steps and picking up trash, cigarette butts, gum wrappers, etc. But mostly sweeping, always sweeping, all day long. Must have been the cleanest set of stairs in all of Texas. I suppose that it was a treat for them, though. After exhibiting good behavior for a while, they were actually allowed outside the unit. I've seen the conditions inside, and boy, I would not want to be locked up in there for too long. Still, the looks in their faces. Blank stares, slack jaws, sweating in the 100-degree sun. As I said, very depressing. I had a lot of experience with mental disorders, being diagnosed with depression and bipolar disorder and being a recovering alcoholic. I found help and comfort through proper medical care and support groups, and I wished that there was some way I could pass that on to these poor men. Then, one day, I discovered how I could. The guards at the front desk came to know me and some of my supervisory crew. They didn't mind if we occasionally came inside the lobby to get out of the summer sun and use the restrooms or buy soda from one of the machines in the waiting room. I was sitting in a chair one day, holding a cold bottle of Big Red to my forehead, when I overheard two women talking nearby. They were well-dressed and obviously not there as visitors. I wasn't trying to eavesdrop, but the few words I heard caught my attention. Apparently, they were volunteers at the prison, bringing the word of the Lord to the inmates confined inside. I told them how much I admired their work and how I had a desire to help in a similar way, and so they suggested that I apply for a position as a pastoral counselor in the unit. Long story short, I did just that. I had to go through some training, uh, what I could and could not bring into the facility, what I could and could not say to the inmates, never share personal information or build friendships, and how to act when inside general population, walking and talking amongst the convicts. It was all pretty much common sense. For the first eight weeks or so, I had to be escorted in and out of the unit proper. I would arrive, place my boots, keys, wallet, and such on a conveyor belt, turn over my briefcase for inspection, and walk through a metal detector. Then one of the guards at the entrance to the general population would call up to the counselor's office, and someone would come down to get me. During the eight weeks, I was fingerprinted, interviewed, and a federal background check was run on me. Eventually, I was given a badge of my own and no longer needed an escort. I learned many things in my first few months of volunteering. Bibles were like currency to the inmates, reading material to overcome boredom. Pencils were not allowed in the cell blocks, so the men loved meeting with me to write journals. They spent most of their time doodling ideas for tattoos. The really sick ones, the mentals, as the guards cruelly referred to them, were not allowed into general pop and looked forward to my visits. Most of all, 
I learned how easy it was to get in and out of prison. Not that I would have ever done it, but I marveled at the fact that, given the right inclination, a body could make a mint smuggling in cigarettes or booze stuffed into their socks. I followed the same ritual every evening that I visited. I'd park in the lot, walk past the trustees who swept the front steps. Wow, did they ever stink, and enter the facility. The guards got to know me and grew comfortable with my visits. They began by waving me through the detector without having to remove my boots or open my briefcase, and eventually started letting me avoid the security check altogether. Next, I was allowed to bypass the desk and go directly behind a filing cabinet where I could retrieve my badge. I wasn't permitted to take it outside the prison. Then I'd get buzzed through an unremarkable metal door and walk down a long, unadorned hallway. At the end of the hall was where the genuine security measures began. The hallway terminated at another door, this one made of double layers of thick, cloudy, bulletproof glass supported within a frame of four-inch-by-four-inch square steel tubes. I would approach and stand under a camera mounted above the door, lifting both my face and the badge toward the camera in order for the guards inside to verify my identity. Once done, the door would slide open, allowing me to step inside an airlock of sorts. Then the door would slide shut behind me. The compartment was a triangular room with three doors, all similar, and a window set into the slide. The guards in control of the doors sat behind the window and would control the doors, opening only one at a time. I came to call them door number one, two, and three. Sort of like the game show, Let's Make a Deal. I always entered through door number one and then was allowed to pass through door number two into the prison's general population. From the start, I would always gaze at door number three and wonder what was behind it, as it was the only door with darkened glass. Since no more than one door was ever open at one time, I never got a peek inside. During my orientation, I was told that the prison infirmary was back there. When door number two opened, the stench was overpowering. No matter how many times you would enter the block, you never did get used to it. Mostly, it was the reek of urine, but was accompanied by the underlying sweet citrus smell as the result of the cleaning fluid that they ineffectively used to mop down the halls. Inmates ambled up and down the halls, always giving you the once-over with their eyes. Occasionally, they'd lock eyes with you and try to stare you down. During orientation, we were never told to look away, to stare them down as you would a stray dog. Looking away would be a sign of weakness. It may seem cruel, but you had to keep them beat down. You had to constantly remind them that you were in charge, that they were nothing. Anything less could lead to unrest and rebellion, and you couldn't have that. The mentals were up on the ninth floor. The elevators, like the doorways, were controlled by the guards and monitored by cameras. I would press the single wall button, and eventually the doors would open. I'd step inside, look at the camera, and speak my destination into the camera microphone. Sometimes there would be an inmate or two in the elevator. I never stood with my back to them. 
I would always stand facing them, my back to the door, staring them down, and for the most part, they would lower their eyes to the floor and try not to look at me. I was instructed never to enter an elevator if it was occupied by an inmate that intimidated me, but I never backed down. At first, I acted brave because I was unsettled, but didn't want to show it. After a while, I felt sympathy for the men more so than fear of them. The ninth floor was divided up into five pods, each containing five double-occupancy cells. My habit was to rotate which pod I would visit on a daily basis, taking the weekends off. Even though I was educated not to make friends with the prisoners, I have to admit that I looked forward to the visits as much as they did. Sometimes heavily medicated and by far the calmest group of men in the facility, they were, save for a few odd ducks, among the nicest people I'd ever met. So it was, day after day, week after week, month after month, that I would follow the same routine. There were occasional variances on some days, due to fights or unrest among the inmates in general population, but one thing never changed. Every day as I entered the block, I would look over at door number three and wonder what lay behind it. I asked a few times and was told the infirmary, and after a while stopped asking for fear that someone might become suspicious about why I cared so much. Truth was, I was just a curious person. Once, I even asked volunteers if there was a chance that I could get a tour of the infirmary, perhaps then visit the men back there, but was told with great firmness that my request would be impossible to fulfill and that I should let the issue drop. I could almost hear the implied or else. That just piqued my curiosity even more. My interest grew and grew until one day I decided that I was going to visit the infirmary one way or another. Although my decision was made on a Tuesday, I didn't act immediately. I became more attentive to which guards were working on each day and at each time. Certain ones were more lax or friendlier. It took two weeks of studying them and building my confidence until I decided that it was time to act. Exactly two weeks and one day from the Tuesday that I made my decision, I finally got up the courage to say, I'm visiting the infirmary today. In my mind, I thought, well, let's see what's behind door number three, Monty. The guard never even batted an eye. All right, Hutch, have fun, he said, twinkling his fingers as his eyes dropped back to the video screens in front of him. That easily, the door slid open. Boy, if the stench in general pop was bad, the odor wafting through door number three must have been quite literally... A hundred times worse. In the hot Texas sun, and with all of the turnkey vultures, roadkill, it never lasted very long in Lubbock. Every once in a while, though, you'd come across a fresh one. That's the closest thing I could think of to describe the smell behind door number three. It was as if you picked up a day-old dead armadillo, buried your nose in its crushed belly, and took a deep breath. Well, what I imagine it would smell like. 
never really done that. Definitely the smell of rotting meat and gangrene, though. The doors slid shut, and another long hall was revealed. Dimly lit with flickering fluorescence, it was like something straight out of a horror movie. I soon found out that that was an extremely appropriate description. Another door at the end of the hall hung loosely from its frame, allowing light to leak out of it. I could hear alternating moaning, crying, and the worst screaming coming from behind the door. I could have, should have turned around and headed back for the exit, but I'd gotten too far. The only way was to go forward, forward and through that door. Although I knew it would seem suspicious, I opened the door slowly and stuck my head around the corner. The best way to seem as if you belong somewhere is to stride right through with, with confidence, but I couldn't. I was afraid of what might be behind the door. Heck, I thought it most likely was just a prison hospital. Moaning, crying, screaming. All noises normal for men in pain. It was most definitely not a normal hospital ward. There were at least a dozen men strapped to steel tables, some naked, some in orange prison jumpsuits, and some wearing striped suits like the trustees that I passed every day outside on the stairs. All of them had IVs inserted into their arms, the drip bags containing a fluid that looked like antifreeze. Vital signs monitors were attached to most of them, and I could see by the displays that two of the men were clearly dead. There were two men and a woman, all wearing lab coats, standing amongst the tables. One of the male doctors looked up in surprise and then beckoned over. Come in, come in. They must have noticed the look of confusion, quickly turning to panic in my eyes. The female doctor began explaining in a soothing voice. Don't worry. You're not the first outsider to stumble his way into our infirmary, and I'm certain that you won't be the last. As you've probably already guessed, what we have here is more of a lab than a hospital. We've just become so used to calling it the infirmary that it's simpler that way. She drew a breath and was about to continue when another of the doctors shouted, It's happening! Everyone, myself included, turned toward one of the tables that held a dead man. Well, previously held a dead man, to be exact. His VSM had jumped to life and seemingly so had he. He began twitching and then thrashing. Then he began to scream. I had seen a man being burned alive once when a barrel of hot tar accidentally spilled on him. And the screaming was the same. It was gut-wrenching and made my skin crawl. You could hear the pain and sorrow in it. The female doctor scrambled to inject a syringe of some milky liquid into the man's IV port and after what seemed like an eternity, although it was probably mere seconds, he calmed and his breathing steadied itself. Here's the thing. They had not been performing CPR on the man when I walked in. There was no defibrillator to be seen. The man was unmistakably dead when I arrived, and during the few minutes we'd been talking. Yet here he was, alive once again, 
as if he had spontaneously resurrected. Disturbingly, though, his eyes were still clouded over, as if he had cataracts. An uneasy and sick feeling crept its way into my belly. The doctors had not told me anything yet, but on some level I already knew what was happening, or at least part of it. I was incredulous. What's going on? So, while two of the doctors tended to the resurrected man, the third explained the experiment to me. You see, we were tasked to find out whether or not so-called evil men have souls or not, he began. Of course, I personally do not think that there is any such thing as true evil, but I do wonder if these malcontents have the same sort of spiritual makeup as normal people. After all, why do they do what they do? In 1907, a Haverhill, Massachusetts doctor by the name of Duncan McDougall managed, apparently overcoming any ethical reservations over human experimentation, to put six dying people on a bed equipped with sensitive springs and claimed to have observed a sudden loss of weight, about three-quarters of an ounce, at the exact moment of their death. Having reasoned that such loss could not be explained by bowel movements or evaporation, he concluded he must have measured the weight of the soul. A follow-up experiment also showed that dogs didn't seem to suffer the same sort of loss, therefore they didn't have souls. I'm not implying that these inmates are on the equivalent of dogs, but one must wonder exactly how they compare to normal, healthy human beings. We obviously do not have much control data, but we have recycled these men as much as possible for our research. It was there that I stopped him. Recycled? Oh, yes, he brightened. We don't just throw them away. You see, as pleasing consequence of our intended experiment, we found that we were able to revive our test subjects. Revive them? Yes, revive, resurrect, bring them back, whatever you wish to call it. This way we were able to take measurements and observe through a variety of different conditions, and it's quite ingenious. I really did not know what to say at that point. To question who authorized the experiment, what the ramifications were, how it worked. So I asked the first question that popped into my head. So, do they have souls? He removed a pencil from his breast pocket and tapped the side of his head, as if thinking it over. You know, I'm quite certain that they do. As I said, we lack enough data to use as a control. However, it seems that each time we bring them back, they lose a little until, it seems, it's all gone. After a certain point, we can no longer observe any differences. And how long does that take? Usually four or five cycles. I cocked my head, still in disbelief, over the casual way he was talking about the atrocities they were committing. And what happens then? I'm sorry, he said, I don't follow you. After you're done with them, what happens to them then? Woo-hoo-hoo, he blew air through his pursed lips. Yes, that's a problem, isn't it? That's currently the little snag we've run into. You see, eventually they just stop dying. 
He must have seen the look on my face. I mean, it's not as if we haven't tried. We usually put them down in the most humane way. Sedation, paralysis, even the injection of enough potassium to stop their hearts. Then we revive them and do it again, and again, and again. Each time, it gets a little more difficult to put them down, until, well, until we just can't do it anymore. What? I was just about screaming. In simpler terms, they're basically incapable of dying. Quite a problem. And they really start to stink, he said, as if that were the chief problem. Can't you burn them? Cremate the bodies? It was his turn to look at me in disgust. Oh, now that would be cruel. I held my head in my hands and began to hyperventilate. So where are they? Well, he said, outside, sweeping the steps. With that, I began to feel lightheaded. What caused me to faint, though, was his next question. Mr. He looked at my badge, then into my eyes. Hutchison, would you consider yourself to be a good person? Do you believe that you have a soul? Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I hope you enjoyed the Montford Experiment by author Kenneth Cole. Up next, we've got another soul-rendering tale for you. This one from author Gareth Shore. In it, we'll meet a man tortured by the memory, not of what he's done, but of what he failed to do. Without further ado, I present to you, Wintertime. All our yesterdays have lighted fools. The way to dusty death. Macbeth, Act 5, Scene 5. With turned frozen earth stinking sharp on his big coat and gritting black under his fingernails, he checked the side lane, was empty, before clinking the allotment gate shut behind him. Only when the iron bolt had slid home and the padlock was locked tight in his fist did he stop to take in a needling lungful of December night. It stalactited right into his guts and sharpened his senses so that he could hear the crump of the packed snow as he shifted his bulk. 
leaning this way and that under a bright-tossed handful of winter stars. Craning his neck right back, he turned on the spot, the swirl of the universe making him dizzy, and he smiled up a hot plume of breath. He was already late, and his wife would be worried. She always worried these days, ticking and tapping round the house like a mindless clockwork mouse. But this had become a special night, and he just wanted to stand there and soak it in for a few moments. The allotment lay off the main street, and at this time of year and night, none of the other tenants of this modest smudge of green and all the tarmac and concrete and brick would stop by, so he was alone. He wasn't even worried about the footsteps. Two sets going in, only his coming out. It was one of those rare, rare winter nights when snow had come down thick and shushed the world, and he had it all to himself. He looked at his hands, marveling, as he always did, at the veins and muscular fingers strengthened by all those years of physical work of hard, honest graft. He turned them over, still proud that retirement had not robbed them of their iron. There isn't any blood. Why would there be? Why do you look? There was dirt, however, and he would have to wash them before his wife saw. Before she knew he hadn't just been out for one of his walks, he fisted his Macbeth hands and pushed them deep into his coat pockets. He paused, considered going back to check the lock on the allotment gate, then decided against it. He knew if he did, he'd end up cleaning his tools again. Then, inevitably, he'd go behind his shed to stir the fire embers in the old oil drum, just to be sure. Then he would pause and stare at the patch of turned-over soil, and he'd get to thinking. A shiver shook him free, and he left the lane to join the main road, aware again of the fresh footprints his boots were leaving. He eyed them as they came up the road, through the allotment entrance and back out. So many of them, he thought, and felt weary in a way that would not have happened a few years ago. Another sign that even his body, made solid by years of hard labor, was starting to betray him. Perhaps retiring had been a mistake, but his wife had worn him down with her drip, drip, drip comments like water onto a stone. His hands were still strong, but his bones ached in the cold. Besides, the heavy clouds now moving in from the horizons would bring more snow in the early hours of the morning and cover the footprints over. And who would visit the allotment this late in this cold? It was a risk, in many ways, the biggest he'd ever taken. But it was a calculated one, and he was not a man to change his mind easily once it was set. The main road was quilted in suburban quiet, lined with semi-detached houses with economical cars in the drives. He stared at the closest houses, the flickering of television lights around the edges of drawn curtains, no one had seen him leave the allotment lane, he was sure of that. The salt-spreading truck had been passed earlier, but a thick flurry earlier in the evening had done all its work, the road surface only distinguishable from the pavements by the rounded humps of the curbs. 
He frowned with distaste at the way the streetlight stained over the bluish hue of starlight and snow with their sickly orange all the way up the hill, all the way to his house. The nearest streetlight etched his shadow sharp against the snow. He paused to look at it, admiring the way he bulked across the ground, not quite the shape of a man, not a hulking darkness with shaved head round and sunken into his bulwarked, upturned collar. He wondered if this is how he had looked to the girl, but her face turned up to look at him, hadn't been scared as she pulled the piece of paper out of her pink anorak. Her brown eyes peeping over the picture of a black-and-white cat had entranced him. It hadn't been too late, a few hours ago in the early evening, but still deep dark, and he'd been surprised to find her out by herself. Coming across someone else on his walks was rare, and even then usually only dog walkers. Yet here was a little girl, out alone and waving a piece of paper up to him. Jefferson ran away last night, and he hasn't come back. Mummy went to her friend's house ages ago and hasn't come back yet. She promised to look for him, but I know she's forgotten to, so I'm going to find him. All in clouds of breathlessness. Bending down to look into her round face, framed by a pink hood pulled tight, he had seen how her anorak was dirty, how her laces were untied on her off-white and unicorn pink trainers, how a knot of hair poking out was greasy and a nothing shade of brown. His nod was enough for her to follow in his big wake. As they walked the short distance to the allotment, he told him that she had an older brother, but he lived away with her dad, so he couldn't help her. It was just her and her mum. She clutched the picture in both hands, regularly stopping to check under cars and in bushes, calling out Jefferson while he kept his head hunched down and scanned the road ahead. He could see the turn-off to the lane that led down to the allotment not far away. As he trudged through the snow away from the allotment, the street lights revolving his shadow around him like a time-lapsed sundown, he imagined arriving home. The porch light would be on, and you would even be through the gate before the door would open. An unsteady figure, once pleasantly rounded, but now too thick in the legs and hips, silhouetted against the hallway as she pulled her nightgown around her dumpiness and sherry stink. And as he stamped the snow from his boots, the questions would start. Why had he been so long? Didn't he remember she said tea would be out at seven? Did he enjoy making her worry so much? And he would shoulder past her to eat his cooling food in silence while she cried herself into numbness on Jenny's bed. Sometimes when he returned, on the really bad nights, when she'd been drinking heavily, she'd be leaning against the doorway with a flat bovine look on her face and ask, did you find her? When she was like that, she couldn't even remember Jenny had disappeared years ago. His walks were his escape. As his shadow swung by again, he smiled at the snowmen in the gardens, most of them lopsided things, not like the ones he used to make with Jenny. His smile soured into a frown. He'd not thought of that for years. 
It hadn't snowed properly for a long, long time, but even so, he didn't like to think he might be forgetting things about her. His wife had tried to swamp her loss with drink, and she had melted her beauty and strength away with it. But he held on to the pain, crushed and squeezed his grief into a diamond hardness that glittered in his eyes, that made other men, younger men, look away first. And he'd used the strength and pride it gave him to defy time and age while he'd come to despise his wife's soft wax shapelessness. Yet he had forgotten making the snowman all the same. He tramped on, scowling as he passed another glorified lump of snow, with hollowed eyes and morse-code mouth. As his breath steamed, he realized that the weariness was growing, that the way seemed steeper today. His shadow revolved around him as he walked, and he felt exposed as he entered the orange pool of another streetlight, its midge buzz setting his teeth on edge. He supposed it was nothing but the ebb of his adrenaline. That must be why he sweated under his big coat tonight. He glanced up and saw he was nearly halfway up the hill. Did you find her? Asked his wife's voice in his head. Not her, was his reply tonight. She told him she was called Chelsea as he unlocked the allotment gate. He had merely nodded, not speaking, when she asked if Jefferson might be in there. She babbled on, flapping the picture of her cat, but he was only aware of the coldness of the iron gate and the way his bulky hands made the padlock seem small, like he could crush it if he curled his fingers. As he slow swung the gate shut behind them again, Chelsea bounced with impatience and ran off along a snowy path, still calling. He paused with the padlock in his hand, looking at their footprints, his deep and spaced out in furrows, her sparrow prints weaving to and fro, then clicked it locked. The lane outside was empty and tucked away between scratchy hedgerows. They hadn't seen a single soul out in the roads. He called to her before she scampered over the neighboring plots, his tight voice surprising him. His duffel coat hid it, but inside its thickness he was trembling. Have you seen Jeffy? She patted, and although the allotments were bordered by high trees and hedges on all sides, he flinched at the loudness of her voice and ushered her over to shed in its shadowed corner away from the reach of the streetlights. Chelsea darted around the picture still in one winter pink hand, untied laces trailing and sodden. She dropped to her knees to look in the gap underneath the shed, oblivious to her gray tights darkening with damp, called the cat's name twice, then bounced up and danced around the corner to the back. He followed, his hands now out of his pockets. Swearing at his weakness, he had to stop and lean on a wall for a rest, his shadow mimicking him by reaching up and lolling on the bricks next to him. He never had to stop up on the hill before and felt a pang of worry, Undoing a button on his duffel coat, he reached inside and rested his hand over his heart. It was thumping away inside of his shirt, in a way he did not like. His doctor had only told him last month that he had the ticker of a man a decade younger. 
As the blood pressure band tightened against his hard bicep, he told the doctor he knew that already and had come only to stop his wife's nagging. Yet his heart was busy doing the can-can inside his chest now, and his scalp steamed under his close-cropped gray-and-white stubble. Just the last of the adrenaline. He should have given his body a few moments to calm down before walking home, that's all. Taking in a few lungfuls of cold air revived him a little, and as he set off his shadow, left the wall and slid around him, undulating over the bumpy snow. He watched it resolve as he passed through another pool of orange light, gritting his teeth against the streetlight fizz. Undoing the rest of his buttons on his coat, he resolved to lengthen his strides and not to stop and rest again, even if it meant facing his wife's damn questions sooner. He kept a pile of branches and a metal oil drum for burning rubbish and nothing much else behind the shed. It was a small space and didn't get much light under the canopy of a big elm, even in summer. Now the December night sky showed through the branches, but this place was hidden from the rest of the allotment, tucked away in a far corner none of the other plot owners had shown any interest in. Chelsea's coat looked dirty gray in the gloom of the shed's shadow, her face dark in her hood except for the whites framing her eyes. He just stood next to the oil drum, watching her, as she paced around the branch pile, peering into the shadows under the elm, wary of going into them. She kept calling for the cat, but more quietly, less often now, hope draining out of her. And as he watched her, he remembered those winter nights years ago, when he had gone out looking for Jenny, long after the police had called off their search, walking until he blistered, hoarse with calling. And he had kept going out to look, kept returning home to shake his head and go upstairs so he didn't have to listen to his wife's despair. Eventually, he'd walk just to take down the posters so he didn't have to look at Jenny's face on every lamppost and bus stop. And now he walked just to walk, because it was a normality his wife wouldn't allow at home. He realized that he was clenching his jaw tight, and Chelsea was looking up at him with wet cheeks inside her hood, asking where Jeffy had run off to. He shook his head and picked her up and hugged her to him. He pressed her wet face into his duffel coat and looked up into the black lightning fork branches of the elm tree and hugged her as tight as he could. After a while, the piece of paper with the cat picture on it drifted down to settle on the snow. He stumbled, banging his hip against the garden gate, but plowed on through the snow, his swinging clock hand shadow-marking off the meters. His boots felt too big, his coat too heavy, the street lamps too bright as they spotlighted his footprints behind him. Etching his path back to the allotment, where smaller feet had followed him through the gate. He wished he'd erased all those prints now, and cursed the stars showing in between the orange lights up in a clear sky. The forecast had promised more snow. He remembered it saying so distinctly, but he still couldn't see a single cloud overhead. His heart felt like it was trying to elbow its way out of his body, 
Sweat dotted through his shirt when he put a hand to his chest. A whiff of soil from his black fingernails turning his stomach. He tried not to watch his shadow as it came around again, but it drew his eyes. And as it did, slid into the edge of his vision. He staggered into a low fence and had to stop. Across a trimmed front garden, the house windows were mercifully dark, so he half squatted, half leaned, thankful for the shadow. He imagined the footprints outside the allotments glowing in the damn streetlights back down the hill. He felt the urge to turn around, go back. He walked on, determined not to look behind him, as his shadow traced its clockwise path around him, inking darker as he reached the next streetlight. He swore he could actually feel the life drain from his body, like a plug had been pulled somewhere as the shadow completed another circuit. He sagged to another stop, his coat hanging loose on him, gripped his knees, bent over. The orange light threw the veins on his hands into relief, and he stared at his thin fingers, swollen knuckles, and long nails still dark with soil. The hands of an old man. They shook as he held them up, and he gasped at their frailness, at the chicken bone wrists loose with doughy skin. He had worked with his hands all his life, hauling and chopping and bending things to his will with him. But these were his father's hands, last seen folded over his chest in death. He remembered watching with disgust as time had guillotined at the man he'd once admired, slicing him thinner and thinner until he slid easily into a small coffin. And now he wondered at his shadow balding ahead of him and all of those footsteps behind him, and he was scared. And he thought about all the time since losing Jenny. All that time spent raging and defying that damn guillotine. Time had stood still behind the allotment shed. He had made it stand still for the girl. But out here, under all the clockwork stars, he couldn't stop it ticking now. A shadow, revolving away the years. A thought like a fever dream. I'm dying, piece by piece. Is this a punishment? Years of defiance. The debt being called in. Haven't I suffered enough? Panting, he looked up the hill, counting the streetlights to his house. He thought he could make out the glow of the front porch light where his wife would be waiting. Sherry warm. His vision blurred. He rubbed his eyes, and the smell of freshly turned soil reeked from his corpse hands, and he gagged and coughed, his teeth feeling loose in his mouth, and he tasted blood. No, not like this. Not on his own street for everyone to see him, helpless. He remembered their pitying stares when the police called off the search for Jenny, the hands on his shoulders and the cards through the door, and he hated them all for thinking it made him weak. What if I go back, back to the allotment, with my shadow going the other way round? Will I get my minutes and months and years back? A small girl with a blue coat and yellow shoes stood in his way, looking up at a sheet of paper stuck to a lamppost several feet away. 
for a horrible, hollow second. He thought it was Chelsea, perhaps come to ask him if he had seen her cat. Her hood was up, but when he saw a braided ponytail of hair hanging out of its shadow, he knew who she was and held out an old hand toward her. Her name came out as a croak. She didn't move, still staring at the paper, as he worked up some spit. He remembered how he'd told her to wear that coat before she went out, even when she argued that the shop was only a few minutes away. He had held it for her as she slipped her arms into the sleeves, grumbling she was too old for it. Jenny. The girl didn't turn, but looked up at the sky now, a hint of cheek and snub nose inside the hood making his chest hurt. Peering up past the street lights, he saw the stars were gone, covered over in dark rolls of cloud. Flakes of snow speckled the sky, then fell through the orange lights to tickle his cold face. He smiled with the memory of Jenny, whooping out into the garden at the first sun of snow to stand cross-eyed and try to catch a flake on her tongue stuck out. His grin crumpled when he looked back down and saw she was gone. He flailed to where she had stood, to where only two footprints, two small pools of dark, remained. As he watched, the snowflakes dropped fatter and heavier, and the prints started to fill and lose shape and then fade away. A piece of paper remained, taped to the streetlight, and he groaned as he saw the picture in the writing. Missing, printed in blocky font across the top just as they had been all those years ago, on street after street. Now he'd lost her again, and he felt the last tendril of his year's forged strength break. There was his shadow as stark as ever, and pointing onwards across the orange-stained snow. But it was a crooked thing now, all bone and broken glass angles. The air was cold on his thin skin, and he was old and frail, and he would have to return home without their daughter again. He tore the poster down, shocked by its chilly realness and the sharpness of the crumpled paper. The snow whited out the road back down the allotment, signs of his passing long gone, no doubt covering over the freshly turned small black rectangle of soil behind the shed and graying the embers in the oil drum. He shuddered inside his big coat, rubbing his head as flakes tickled his scalp. His shaking hands came away with clumps of white hair, like holding thin pieces of winter, and he let them fall invisible into the snow. His eyes blurred again, but he could still make out the glow of his front porch light. Home was so close. If he could make it back, he would be all right. His wife would be waiting for him, wrapped in her warmest dressing gown, and he would tell her that he had seen Jenny, that he couldn't bring her back this time, but he had found her, and she was still beautiful and young. Yes, he would get home, get strong again, and come back out and save her. He pulled his coat around tighter and stumbled on up the hill into the darkness before the next street light, trying to ignore his shadow as it wheeled away out of sight behind him. His breathing was loud in the hushed world as snow mounted ever higher over the pavement and sucked at his boots, 
that grew looser on his feet. He pulled them free and dragged onwards, pulled them free and dragged onwards again, moth fixed on the light of home. He used to scoff when his dad complained that he could feel the cold in his bones. It seeped so deeply into him now that he ached down to the marrow. He grimaced through another pool of orange streetlight as his shadow completed another circuit and came around to stretch out in front. He stumbled, unable to lift a leg high enough out of the snow, and fell forward, the cold of it gasping the breath out of his lungs. Forcing back tears and terror, he crawled on with numb arms, his shadow crawling next to him as he scraped a hollow furrow up the road. In the final glow of orange before home, he stopped and coughed. The red shine of his blood was shocking on the blankness of the snow under him. Chelsea, kneeling in the snow, her tights getting wet, calling for a cat. He coughed another blood spray and gritted his teeth. His house was there, right there. He could see the snow swirling in the porch light. And then he saw Jenny sitting on the wall by his gate, swinging her yellow shoes and waiting for him in her blue coat with the hood still up. She was looking down at the piece of paper she held. She's giving me a second chance. He could do it. He could get to her, and he'd take her inside to his wife. He felt the blood smearing his face as he wiped his mouth. Didn't care. Crying as he crawled out of the light and into the last patch of darkness. He couldn't see it, but he could feel his shadow start to revolve around him praying he could reach Jenny before it completed its final revolution. They might have been swarming snowflakes, but he could see the small white flowers on Jenny's coat now. Daisies. They were daisies. He called again as he crawled toward her. She didn't look up from the sheet of paper. He could see how one of her laces trailed undone, and he tried to call louder as his shadow slid out to the side coming round into his vision. But his throat was too tight, and his mouth too dry, and his breathing too thin for her to hear. His left arm cracked as it gave way, and he thumped down into the snow. There wasn't any pain, but when he turned his head, he saw it was crooked, like a thin branch shearing from a tree. He could feel the thinness of his bones, and over his fluttering breathing, he listened to his ribs creak. Rolling his eyes up, he groaned when he saw that the wall was empty and Jenny was gone again. The sheet of paper was still there, bright in the porch light, spilling through the gate. Feeling the weight of the snowflakes mounding on his head and on his back and legs, he thought how nice it would be to just lie there and let the snow covering in whiteness, until he was blanked out and erased, like the two sets of footprints that led into the allotments and the one pair that had come back out. The piece of paper. He had to know what it was. He dreaded seeing the word missing again, yet what if it wasn't the poster? What if it was a letter from Jenny? He could give it to his wife and she would be happy again, and she would help bring him back from this. He would wash the stink of soil from his hands, and he would get strong again. Jenny would want that. 
In her letter, she would forgive them for losing her, forgive him for the things his grief had made him do, and his wife would stop leaving the light on the porch every night. He eyed the distance to the letter to his gate. One arm dragging by his side, he curled and uncurled like a landed fish inching forwards, dark and distorted and inevitable. His shadow came on. The fingers on his good hand reached for the piece of paper and clawed it to his face, its writing huge as he rolled an eye over it. A child's drawing. A crayoned cat and chicken scratch writing that said, Jefferson. He tried to push it away with fingers that crumbled as they stretched. His shadow clicked into place at twelve o'clock, dead ahead of him. Pulling her dressing gown tightly around her, his wife shivered on the front step, watching the snow swirl through the porch light. She swayed, her breath cloudy with strong sherry, and peered out into the street, looking for her husband's bowed head over the hedges and fences, stretching down the hill. In the long, unchanging days in their cold house, he would keep telling her their daughter was gone forever. He was too stubborn and weak to hold on to hope. But when she was alone in the world blurry with alcohol, she would remember that Jenny's body had never been found. So she would drink some more and let herself believe for one more evening. And when he returned from his damn walks, she would see not the weariness in his face, the grayness of his eyes, and she would ask the same question she always asked. He was very late now, and the sherry heat was being leached away by the air. She shuffled out in her slippers onto the snowy path and up to the gate, her footprints weaving behind her. Brushing snow from the gate top, she leaned out and looked down the road. The pavement was empty all the way, and she could just make out the turn-off to the allotments at the bottom. But she knew he didn't go there this time of year. The road going the other way was also empty. Teeth starting to chatter, she looked down the hill again. The way the light from the nearest street lamp puddled in a shallow depression nearby caught her eye. Checking nobody was around, she opened the gate and went out. As she neared the depression, she inhaled carefully. Sure, she could detect a trace of freshly dug earth in the air. It was dark and moist and sharp against the scentless white all around her. The bottom of the depression was black, and squatting down, she dipped a finger into it. It was soft and powdery on her fingertips, and when she brought them up to her nose, they smelled not just of soil, as she expected, but also of fire and charcoal. She rubbed her fingers and watched gray dust puff up into the air, where it was lost in the streetlight glow and snowflakes. Wiping her fingers on her nightgown, she went back up to the path. She decided that she would thaw her shivers with another sherry, and she would sit by the window and carry on waiting for her husband to return from his walk. He would be back soon, and she wanted to ask him if he had seen Jenny.
I hope you enjoyed Wintertime by author Gareth Shore. I'd like to personally thank you for joining me for this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes featuring Twice the Terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs or become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well, at the Otis Gyre channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, dating back to 2014. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, too. Just search for Otis Gyre. Until next week, stay spooky, and get some sleep, if you can. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Jiry. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering provided by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Program's artwork and logo by David Romero. If you're looking for some fresh tales on a daily basis while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, The Otis Jiry Channel, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name, and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, 
do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? Ha 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 ha